Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Michael Mead. Michael Mead is an American storyteller, author and scholar of mythology, anthropology and psychology. He's founder and director of Mosaic Multicultural Foundation, a non-profit network of artists, activists and community builders that encourages greater understanding between diverse peoples. Michael is the creator of the Living Myth podcast and his new online series, The Soul of Genius begins on August 14th at mosaicvoices.org and I'll be paying close attention to that because I had a wonderful conversation with Michael Mead. I think you're going to love it. It's right where this podcast lives. Trying to understand the nature of being an individual in a complex and often corrupt world that is abstract from the kind of... uh, conditions that we are evolved for but he does it through he tells stories in the podcast i think you're going to love this it's fantastic but first let's 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 read some of your comments about the britney kaiser podcast bear can come in hello mate you big beautiful animal I'll take you for a walk i've not been feeling very well lately so the dog's been getting walked later in the day i've not been doing any exercise you're right mate i'm picking sleep out of his eyes right now good boy i take that as a review what's the matter mate you're good lad and chat you're a lally boy you're a lally old boy don't jump up you'll hurt your back Right, so here are some of your uh, comments from the Brittany Kaiser episode. Did you enjoy the Brittany Kaiser episode, Jingo? Yeah, she was great. She was really interesting and brilliant and informative. Um, did you do a good job of putting it together and putting the clips out and promoting it and that? Yeah. Well, I did I so. think you don't think I did? Well, I just assume sometimes that you won't have done. <laughs> Songwriter of Real Issues says says to us all, thank you for this podcast. I'm 24 from Australia. Listening to this made me feel angry. And it sounded very scary about how power and control is used to get information. Thank you at your own data for speaking out. That's good, isn't it? Jackie Mar 42 love this podcast. Wow, thanks. Always wondered how this worked. Very spooky. It was very educational and informative to talk to Brittany Kaiser, talking about big data, talking about the corruption of powerful uh, Silicon Valley and beyond uh, tech giants and her own obvious involvement with Cambridge Analytica and what she learned about an election manipulation, the manufacture of consent, pretty good stuff. Rewire Your Relationship said, best interview. The doco was also excellent. People don't seem to care, though. It's like, oh, well, if all they want to do is sell me stuff, that's okay. People clearly still don't understand the enormity of what it means. Keep going, Russell Brand. This info needs to get out there to the masses. Well, we're trying our level best. Greek girl Nahar. Love her. She took the big wigs on by the balls and squeezed the F out of them. I don't like the idea of a, a big wig with balls. Do you? A big, curly, perhaps Brian May wig and then just coming underneath it a <laughs> pair of balls. Do you like that, Jen? No. Nor do I. And the last thing I'd do would be to grab it. Squeeze. Huh? Sleazy. She said squeeze, didn't she? Yeah, she did say squeeze. Because to squeeze the balls, <laughs> there's an erotic undertone to that, I would argue. I thought argue. it was more aggressive than erotic. Kick them in the balls or thump them. It needs to be more of a strike. Because the early part of the squeeze of these big wigs' balls, <laughs> I would say they might rather like. Don't you say, would you agree? I guess it depends on... Depends on the individual big wig. <laughs> Some big wig might not like it. Some big wig will like it. We'll never really truly know because it's a... Constructed bigwig, isn't it, Jen? Hey, do you want some personal promo? Here's some. Sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com and you should because there's some exciting things coming. There's a live performance that's already sold out. But there's also 
I'm going to be doing some online shows and I'm doing some interesting meditation things coming up and maybe even some live retreats. So there's, you've got to get on that russellbrand.com and when the emails come by, Jove, you best watch them. It's normally like a video of me telling you stuff. Also check out my YouTube video uh, channel for more spiritual videos. They're spiritual, these videos are. And clips from the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get notified. Look, just do what you want. And also, you know, social media, follow me on that. Okay, but now let's get into this Michael Mead episode because I, I, it was absolutely fascinating, compelling. It was a recommendation from Andrew Garfield. If you're listening, Andrew, I care for you. I love you. Thank you for this recommendation. Jen, don't raise your ridiculous eyebrows even <laughs> further up behind your mad fringe that you've been cutting yourself What's wrong with it? Is it in bad? preparation to your Swiss excursion. No, no, because <laughs> no, I no. couldn't see. You couldn't see? And then I was tired, so now it's a missed a bit. Oh, you've missed a bit of fringe. You're a fiasco. That's a fiasco of a fringe. And when people talk about a lunatic fringe, Jen, <laughs> no. it's normally a political reference, not a haircut. Pretty well funny. Done. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Pretty funny. I could use that with a heckler, couldn't I? Or an audience If they had member. a fringe. Well, yes, Jen. <laughs> Yes, if they had a fringe. I can't just say it to someone who's got curtains on a party, got a bald spot, can I? It will play. It simply will play. But now let's listen to Michael Mead, a man who unlocks deep mysteries through his understanding of mythology, anthropology, human psyche, and by sharing his own suffering. Let's get into it. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Oh, Michael, thank you very much for joining me on Under the Skin. Happy to be with you. It's, I think you're the first person I've ever interviewed. I, I feel like you're standing up. I stand up, yeah. Would you explain that to us? <laughs> I don't know the full explanation. Um, so I do a lot of um, nowadays, you know, online presentations. And I'm used to being on stage with an audience. And um, I've been a storyteller for a long time. But I found out that as I approach the stage, I will get flooded with images and ideas and even a story I never thought I was going to tell. And, and I have to go with it. And so that happens as I'm standing. Uh, and so when we switched over to doing a lot of things online, I just found it, um, I can align better, perhaps, with whatever's trying to enter. Uh, so I do the podcast standing up and I do the live video events standing up. You work with quite a lot of um, esoteric mythical material drawn from multiple disciplines and but you've just come from a pretty regular background is that right yeah come from a, a working class background and uh i have a uh, a phd but i i didn't work for it they just gave it to me like after a while they, you know just gave me one <laughs> <laughs> that 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 style but um i got involved in myth on my 13th birthday and it just came in like a language that was speak, speaking to my heart and my soul. I didn't have to qualify. I didn't have to uh, become something or somebody. It just spoke to me about 
the world. And so, in a way, you could say myth is about things that never happen but always are. Mm. So it's a whole other perspective on reality. Wow. That's so amazing that you put it like that. I've just come, I've just been speaking with a quantum physicist about the realm of potentiality which is how he explained we have to regard the subparticular world a world of potentiality some of which are realized some of which are not makes me think that what you just said there about myth is it's a sort of a realm of of eternal truth that may not have been actualized on a, a sort of a plane of i don't know history but has deeper truth in it than that anyway exactly that and creation myths, which is a whole category of myths, are about going back to the origins in order to evoke total potentiality. So there's a connection between quantum physics and mythology that's usually not seen. But yeah, myth is about the deep potentials of the soul, and it's about the tremendous imagination that is considered to be the deepest power of humanity. Yeah, how, why is that the deepest power of humanity? Well, the old idea is everything that exists has to first be imagined. And so uh, the world, what we call the real world, used to be called um, the front of the world. And then there was something called the world behind the world. And the world behind the world is the world of imagination, myth, really deep ideas, but also feelings and emotions and all those things that don't fit into the package of uh, daily reality, the things that are really important to our lives, um, those were all considered to be our connection to the world behind the world. And in the Celtic tradition, uh, which would include um, a good deal of the UK and Western Europe, um, they always referred to the other world, which that's how they called it, the other world, which is right next to this world. Only everything in the other world is more intense than it is in this world. And it's more on the verge of revelation than this world. When you are having to convey this information that by its nature is abstract to convey in some regards even though we're talking about deep deep reality how do you how, how do you how do you do that and what do you have recourse to do you do you use plant medicine do you use ritual and and do you feel uh, and do you draw from as many sources as you like and how do you uh place it all together say if we were to have an do one of your courses or something like that how is it that you're curating information and, and structuring it i suppose well it starts with story so i tend to tell folk myths which are the simple versions of the great myths they're briefer they're more to the point um and they're less familiar to people so people have no preconceived ideas so I'll tell a story um, called The Half Boy, where a child is born, but only half is born. And the, the metaphor there is that we're all half until we find the rest of ourselves, the rest of our potential, whatever we want to call it. And so I use the story to open up really big ideas 
uh, and it works with young people, it works with just about anyone. Then in the meantime, I'm studying the myths of all cultures over time. I'm studying philosophy, psychology, anthropology, all the things that can give nuance uh, to the basic stories. And so there's study involved, but the key to the whole thing for me is spontaneous, immediate presence. So no, I don't use plant medicine. I just, I, well, I use drums. So I often tell stories while playing hand drums. And so the drum then sets the rhythm, uh, both for the audience and for the storyteller. And you can do a lot of things with a drum and your voice. But what I've learned is this, is this old tradition. I didn't know it was an old tradition. I never rehearsed a story and I never repeat it the same way. So the story shows up in that moment. And the story uh, and the words come, it's hard to explain, but it's not memorized. I know the story, but the words come out differently each time, as if to say the story is taking in things from the environment and even from the news that can show up in a 5,000-year-old story. And that, I think, makes it more immediate, more present, more pertinent to the world right now, but also it actually nourishes the story and keeps it alive. Sir, is there a story that uh, occurs to you to tell us now that seems uh, appropriate? So if I have to pick one story for the condition we're in in the world, which for me begins with the climate crisis, which is involving everything and everybody and all beings on the earth, and then if you drop down, you have the coronavirus pandemic, which is the humanitarian crisis that affects all people, or it can. And then here in the United States, when you drop down, you drop into the social justice crisis and Black Lives Matter. And those things are all connected and they're all happening at the same time, along with the crisis of truth and untruth and all that stuff. So how do you get a story to relate to that? So here's a Native American story told by several tribes in North America. It's pretty brief. It begins with the idea that there's a cave. And inside that cave is all the knowledge that everybody's been looking for, but somehow no one goes to that cave. There's all kinds of roads and highways and everybody going back and forth 24 hours a day and no one finds that cave. But if you found the cave, inside the cave, there's an old woman. And she's weaving a garment, and she'd been weaving it for a long time, and it's the most beautiful garment anyone has ever seen. And she's down to the hem of the garment, and she wants to weave that out of porcupine quills. And in order to weave the quills in, she has to bite down on them. And she's been biting down on quills for so long, she's worn her teeth down to the gums, but still she keeps biting down and weaving on. And every once in a while, she has to go to the back of the cave where there's an ancient fire and hanging over that a cauldron. And in the cauldron are the seeds of all the plants and all the trees and all the fruits and all the grains. And if she doesn't once in a while stir the cauldron, all the seeds will burn and there won't be any plants and there won't be any grains or any flowers or any trees. And so she gets up and because she's old and working so hard, she moves slowly back towards the cauldron. And as she goes back towards the cauldron, the black dog, what black dog? The black dog goes over to where the garment is laying, waiting for her to return. And the black dog sees a loose thread and it pulls on the thread and it keeps pulling until it unravels the entire garment. 
And the old woman comes back and she looks at the garment of beauty, now turned into chaos, all disentangled. And for a moment, she doesn't do anything. Then she sits down and she sees a loose thread and she picks up the thread and starts to weave. And as soon as she starts to weave, she gets an even more beautiful vision of the garment. And this is going to be an even more beautiful garment than the one before. And she's on her way weaving. So when they tell the story, the elders say, this is a story to understand what's happening now. And then someone will say, damn that black dog. If it wasn't for the black dog, she would have finished the garment and it would have been perfect. And the elders say, the word perfect means over and done. It's connected to death. Be thankful for what unravels the world because the world unravels only to be rewoven out of threads. And then I say, we're like that old woman looking at the chaos that the world has become. And it isn't our job to fix it all or to kind of collapse into fear and worry. Uh, It's our job to pick up a thread like she does. And now I switch to an Irish myth, which says when the world falls apart, the pieces are laying in the margins, and our job is to pick up a piece from the margin and pull it back to the middle. And if everyone just brings their thread forward, we can reweave the garment of the world out of our individual threads, and no one has to be a hero. We all just have to be dedicated to weaving. Oh, wow. That's such a cool story. That's really beautifully told. I really, really love that. And also, it feels like that when you use arcane communication systems and images like that, it reaches beyond our discrete, distinguishing and distant cultures. Me over here in England, you over there, presumably in California, I guess. And like certain like it brings us it brings us together like the black dog has a meaning that goes beyond the words black and the words dog uh, uh, and the idea of the cave and the woman when you said that thing and the fire is at the back of the cave it made me think of um, you know the big bang singularity a point of unity that contains all necessary information and data the sort of fen- f- femininity of the elder seems important the cave I suppose from what I know of young me going into the unconscious mind being willing to drop beyond my own individual identity I suppose as well the black dog you know that brings about the chaos is part of us my understanding again from Jungian analysis that when trying to understand myth or dreams to look at each component as an aspect how held within the individual does is that part of the is that fair analysis that's a good analysis um, and and the simple little story has the three great movements of life on earth, which is to say creation, um, sustaining, that's what the fire and the seeds are about, sustaining nature and sustaining culture and nature connection, and then dissolution before it starts over again. So in mythology, the world can't end. The story of the given time can end, but the end, the word end doesn't mean finito, goodbye, all over. The word end is like loose end. And it means the remnant. And from the loose end, as in the story, the world starts again. The old woman is a woman who weaves the world. You're right. It's a reference to the uh, mythological feminine, which is the source of all weaving weaving and everything that's woven together, including the, the web of nature and all that is considered to be feminine in a lot of myths. It's also, there's a reference to Plato's cave 
in there. Um, and then the origin of art is deep in the caves of the earth, where they found the oldest pieces of art in cave paintings, which were actually part of the ritual of initiation, where the young people were brought down inside the earth. We are the children of the earth. And they were brought in the dark. And then the ones who were the elders or the, whatever they are, the initiators, the mentors, suddenly light torches and all the young people see the cave with all the animals and the spirits painted. And now they've been brought into the other world, the underworld, the background world. And as you say, Jung's idea of the unconscious. And, and the unconscious is where everything we're needing to solve our problems is waiting to be found. So the cave references all that. We don't have this in our culture anymore, it strikes me, uh, Michael. Like, we don't have a process, like I'm sure within, say, certain sports or perhaps certain educational disciplines, there are kind of facsimiles of initiation and probably in many life modalities there are replications of initiation. But I, I grew up myself just uh, with my mother. I have a good relationship with my dad, but we didn't grow up in the same house and, and I had a very like a very identifiable lost boy period like between 16 and almost as late as 27 you know a time of drug addiction a time of ashes and loss and you know now I'm a father myself of two daughters and you know I I, I feel like that these the the fact that there is these these you know perennialism the the, the term uh, coined by Huxley the fact that there are such comparisons to be made in these myths suggest that there is you know within within our diversity and individuality there is a pathway for us how, how what what do you think about the lack of these pathways in say Western consumer democracies and what's the closest we have and what is the consequence of not having them really good questions so. Um... I think one consequence, just to go at it from there, is that we have leaders that are uninitiated, which means they are unable to imagine or envision something that benefits all the people. So they're self-referential, they're self-indulgent. I'm talking about certain people in England and certain people in the United States that are in power, that are clearly uh, like exaggerated boys uh, and in the case of the United States, we're getting full-blown experience of the uninitiated where the, the most powerful person in the country has no capacity for sympathy or empathy and really cannot relate to other people's things. So initiation would take the girl or the boy uh, into the depths of the unconscious, into uh, also the depth of feeling. It, it would be intended to break open the heart, and the heart has all the deep feelings but the heart is also the organ holding the imagination of a person's life and even capable of revealing to, to oneself the aim or the destiny of their life. And so we've lost, oh, and also initiation in traditional terms would move the young person from the lap of their mother to the lap of the great mother, the lap of mother nature. So everybody would have an instinctive connection to nature and everybody would have an intuitive connection to the meaning already that they're carrying. It would be an awakening of the soul, it would be considered to be a second birth so that a person was born now not biologically but psychologically, philosophically. And that would break the bubble of egotism that is the problem with all the, you know, the ones who want to be leaders but don't even know who they are. 
So yeah, it's a wow. tremendous loss. Can you give us an example of some of those initiation rites? And, and, and if there is a distinction between the male and female uh, initiation rites, what are the implications of that in this time of uh, intersectionality? Because I know that sort of in many tribal customs that uh, female initiation happens biologically in a way that is sort of evident and obvious through sort of menstruation, etc. And for men, it has to be more dramatized I suppose one way of saying it um, do, do you, can you think of some good examples for that and then I have a whole host of questions well the first thing is the shape so the you can call it initiation or you can call it rites of passage they're different ways of looking at the same thing and so there's classically three steps the first is separation a person is separated from everyone they know and everything they knew the second step can be called transition or ordeal, but the key in the second step is what's called liminality. Betwixt and between, not one, not the other. The loss of identity and the falling into a space where things are, are mm, the full potential of life is there, including the full confusion. So that's the middle ground. And then the third part is a return um, as a person altered and changed in their essence, returning to a community that recognizes that they have undergone a transformation. So that's the, the, the formula that applies in all cases. And by the way, it applies collectively. So I've been saying lately that I think we're in the middle of a collective rite of passage. The separation is all over the place. The divisions, the oppositions, political, social, economic, but also we're all separated because of the pandemic, literally separated. So the soul goes, oh, they must be doing initiation up there. So, uh, and then liminality in the, in the U.S. here, no one knows if the kids are going back to school or not. No one knows, and none of us know how long the pandemic's going to last. So we're in this liminal, uncertain place. And the only good thing about that is we're closer to the potential that we were talking about at the beginning, that the liminal is, it actually refers to a threshold. And we're in a separated betwixt and between as a culture, as a culture of the world, as humanity, where they're because of climate crisis and other things. Um, and then the third part, the return, would require for modern people to create a meaningful community, at least for a brief period of time. I call it sudden community, where people come together for the benefit of confirming and blessing each other, but in particular blessing the young people who throughout the world now are thrown into a liminal world with uncertainty as the ruling principle even of science. And so, but then if you want to look at differences between the girls and the boys, you named it. Uh, the girls uh, usually have their first menstruation. So that means onset of initiation based on the moon. The, the menstruations, like the cycles of the tides of the ocean, are connected to the moon, their lunar cycles. And so uh, the, the girl goes into uh, an initiatory process, usually alone. I'll give an example. In many parts of Africa, they have a certain tree, which is the ancestor tree. It's hollow. The girl is put inside the tree. You can see the symbolism. She's like returning to the womb, only now it's the womb of nature. But the tree for tribal people represents the shamanic um, kind of pole that connects the underworld, the world at the surface, and the heavens. So she's actually being put in the middle of the cosmos. For the, for the time she's there, 
She can only eat what people feed her. All the women come and feed her. And they feed her food and they feed her mythology and they feed her what we would call psychology, learning. And the only one who can't come is her mother because that has to be the separation. They meet later on. So then she goes through that and then she's brought eventually out and returns to the tribe. And, and she's welcomed by everybody and certain things are made about how you have to respect a woman because she's carrying the womb of the future and she's been at the center of the cosmos. So when she says no, it means no. So they establish all kinds of things. The boys don't have such an obvious menstruation. You could say that the menstruation amongst the boys is in the heart. That what happens that's similar is trying to happen in the heart. So the boys go as a group because they just, they do it that way. Also, boys form gangs. Some people call them football teams. Some people call them the police department. Boys form gangs. So you get then the initiation of the group. But um, what happens is in the course of the initiation, which can have all kinds of things, scarification, burial in the ground, uh, the easiest one to imagine and even employ is vision quest. And what happens in the vision quest, you're back in nature. Same idea, only um, so the they separate, and the boys each go out on their own vision quest. Typically, they're in some deep part of nature, and they sit until a vision comes to them. And so, uh, again, the understanding would be they're being exposed to the heart of nature, and they're being connected to the cosmos. And the vision is typically an animal spirit or an actual animal that visits. And that gives them a, a spiritual totem connection to you know, the, the world, which is always considered to be more than it appears to be. And they have some kind of personal experience, which nowadays we would treat as psychological, but they also have a breaking open of the heart. Remember, the imagination is in the heart, typically in tribal imagination. And so then now they have a heart connection and they know they have a vision of their own life of some kind. But they experience it on their own, the way the girl is inside the tree. And then they come back and tell the elders and they get some kind of teaching. But the idea is they're, someone is transformed entirely, they're never the same again. So we can't implement that. It's very tricky to do. When people say they're doing it, I wonder if they're really doing it. What we've done is say, well, we all go through separation experiences. Uh, you mentioned several when you were just describing your own life at different stages. We all go through collapse, unraveling. Um, some people wind up kicked out of school. Some wind up in jail. Others wind up in war. Some wind up in illness. So I always say, there it is. There's the separation. There's the ordeal and the liminal space. All we have to do is bring all of our energy to people's experiences of loss, collapse, rejection, um, and all those things because it fits right into initiation. So that's how we've done it, is just um, meet people where the greatest wound is and build the rite of passage around the wound that's already there. You identify the personal wound that people that are living outside, obviously when you're dealing with uh, tribal mythology, you're also dealing with localized customs, dealing with small groups of people. And I know there's in a sort of a... Uh, sort of, um, what do I want to say, a satisfying cor corollary between different myths. It's, perhaps it's 
worth noting that they're happening in sort of, I don't know, ghettoized or at least isolated communities where there are just 150 or 200 people that have got shared totems and shared experiences of this is how we survive and this is what we do. Now we're living in, I would maybe even contest, Michael, an inherently unnatural condition of a city in where we all have access to global information. We all have access to these dominant influences that are primarily commercial in their predication and that even from a political perspective it's i would say to serve to appoint us as consumers rather than active agents in our own unfolding our own awakening i wonder how uh these whether or not these uh, and I don't mean this in a der- derisory way, these are sort of simple and uh, uh, formative, arcane systems of folklore, programming, awakening, initiation, how they can be deployed. You say it's by necessarily transposing them onto that individual's experience. You would, if with me, you'd go, right, what was the first time you, what's your wound? Is that how you'd get in? You'd find it on an individual rather than a tribal level. So, yeah, I mean, I've been working on this for, I don't know, 35, 40 years, actually longer than that. My youthful experiences, I wound up in prison because of refusing to participate in the Vietnam War. And then I wasn't a good prisoner. So then I wound up in solitary confinement and I was in there for months. And in there, I decided, I say I decided, but it really didn't happen. Like I got the inspiration to fast. So then I fasted for a really long time. Um, and so, uh, later on I had to figure out what was that about? What was going on? How do I make sense out of it? Because when Mm -hmm. I survive and get back and, and I almost didn't survive, but when I got back and I try to tell people what happened, it didn't make sense to them. And at the time I didn't know even how to go looking for a therapist. I just knew people and no, I couldn't find anybody. And then I remembered I had read something about rite of passage. And so I went back and looked at it, and I said, well, wait a minute, there it is. I was utterly separated from everybody. Um, And then I was in a dark night of the soul, literally solitary in a cell. Um, And then I almost died. That's the description of an initiation process. And so all I had to do was uh, begin to explain that to myself and then figure out how I could get recognized for having gone through that, not as a political act, not as, you know, as just defiance. It, it, it went way past that. It was transcendent. I was a different person, completely, utterly different. And it took me a long time to find a community of people, which was temporary, that could recognize what happened. And that included working with battle veterans and all kinds of people that, that had different angles on war and on loss. So that's where I learned that you can, because in an initiation, you get a wound. And part of the idea would be, uh, like they used to mark the, the arm here. And so that was to remind us that we went through it, that we weren't the same person, the, the embodiment of the experience. It also means I know I'm wounded, which is what the people in charge often don't know anymore. They won't admit they're wounded. Therefore, they can't relate to the wounds of everybody else, and everybody else is wounded. Um, those marks in the arm, by the way, came the, became the stripes in the military uniform. Cool. Yeah, because this stuff doesn't go away. Uh, the, the, the stages of schooling are actually imitation or reflection of initiatory stuff. This is what Jung called archetypal. It will not go away. So 
I didn't want to get caught in the pretense of initiating people when there's no community to return to. That's missing. How do you return people to a community that understands it when the community is uninitiated? So I didn't want to play uh, like with the power of that. So what we decided to do, since wound is essential, knowing one's wound is essential to becoming a human being, an awakened person, we built everything around the wound. And so, but now what's happened that I'm seeing differently is the wound is now evident in all places on the earth. The wound is everywhere because of climate crisis, because of the pandemic, because of the crisis of truth and justice, which is happening in, in cultures all over the earth. The separation is obvious because people are split, turned against each other, but also separating because of the virus. So I'm now trying to figure out how do we use the suffering we're in to be the initiatory suffering that puts us in that place that you mentioned early on of all the potential of life is available again, because that's what happens. The, the middle ground is liminality, betwixt and between, and right next to it is communitas, the old Latin word, which means deep community. And so it doesn't simply mean community of people. It means community of the soul, community of the spirit, so that a person goes deep enough as the girl who's inside the tree in the tribal situation, and they find that they're connected to the natural world. They're connected, regardless of whether they grew up in a city. I grew up in an inner city situation. But still, the soul knows more than that. And then eventually this realization that we're connected to the whole planet, and the planet is now in a deep wound. And like the story of the old woman in the cave, the job now is to find our thread and figure out how we can help do the healing. We're in a position that mythologically is called collapse renewal. Collapse renewal happens at the same time. Things are collapsing all over and secretly things are trying to renew. And that's the same thing that happens in the rite of passage. In the middle of it, we collapse entirely. The, the person we were, in psychological terms, the ego structure just collapses. Because in the midst of the ritual, they're dancing all night long with singing out, out in nature with the fire, dancing, and you fall into ecstasy. And you don't even need to take ecstasy to get into the ecstasy. It just happens because you go past the capacity for the ego to control the situation. And partially, people do that because there's others who are taking care of it so that they don't have to be in charge. And so, so now... I don't know how we take care of it while the earth is in so much trouble, but I think we're in the middle of a collective rite of passage, and it's a really good time to understand it better. And, um, and just to say, there's no end to initiation. It means to step in. So once you get initiated, it doesn't mean that now you're the, you know, you're the real deal. You're just one step on the path. Each initiation leads to a deeper initiation, and it becomes the way of life. Wicked, thank you. I like your description of your personal death and your intuitive uh, fasting and the deep tradition that that evokes and un unconsciously, I presume, aligned with. I like your theory that what we're experiencing is a kind of global initiation and awakening. 
I thinking of my own sort of experiences through sort of therapy and stuff about the the nature of my own wound and my feeling that the wound never goes a kind of Fisher King wound the wound that won't leave me alone that sort of stays with me a kind of fear that it, it, and even as I feel like I progress and even as I grow there's still this sense of damage and pain and wounding and that how that somehow it, it provides a kind of parenthesis a kind of holding a kind of a, a keeps me grounded and helps to maintain um humility the 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 knowledge of this this is very sort of a, i suppose a, a personal observation i don't talk about too much and then i wonder then michael how uh if we you know like you talked about like how we are in a sense toiling under the leadership of unawakened or uninitiated um in this case or these cases men um I wonder what it suggests about a society that these are the kind of uh, political outcomes that we are bringing about, what it indicates about us and what, from a mythical standpoint, is uh, required. You know, if we were to reference only the story that you told us, it would be a sort of sense that, well, allow the unravelling to happen, allow the destruction to occur. But what, what do you think is absent from our culture that we keep sort of electing kind of uh, it seems masochistic to uh, elect leaders that uh tyrannical unaware unconnected what what do we need well we have to recognize all the colonial history behind it and all the pretense um but the way i think of it now is that we're electing the symptoms we're electing <laughs> people that so clearly embody the symptoms th that it's like it sh should be a psychological awakening and realize, oh, that's what arrogance looks like. That's what egotism looks like embodied. That's what unawakened, um, sophomoric rudeness looks like. That's what brutality, that's where brutality comes from. So I, I see it as electing the symptoms so we could learn from it. Now, it's clear that not everybody's learning, but then again, that just indicates how many people haven't had this awakening experience. So... Um, I don't know. I don't know uh, why it would be right now. There are so many of these would-be dictators around the world who are coming out of that authoritarian mode. And so I think it says something about culture's uh, deep misunderstanding. It says something about the exaggeration of the macho, the not real masculine. And it says something about a deep misunderstanding of power. Because what happens is people keep giving their power to other people and to other structures. And they couldn't operate except people give them power. And so there's something being said about people finding their own power and not being so willing to give it away so quickly. Um, and obviously there's no you know, clear sense of where this is all gonna go. Uh, but the way I understand that is that we're in the liminal. And so it's, it's our job to make sense of ourselves and to do what we can to bring meaning into the world and bring even feeling into the world. So here's an old idea from mythology. Uh, I'm not a fan totally of the hero's journey. The only mythology that's ever been kind of semi-public in my lifetime is Joseph Campbell's hero's myth or hero's journey. To me, it's a little bit too muscular a little bit too masculine, a little bit too outer aimed, a little bit too 
uh, heroic, <laughs> and and it's kind of what's gotten us in trouble. So so I talk about the genius myth, and the idea mm-hmm. there, genius is an old Latin word, but what it really means, not high IQ or great talent, it means the spirit that's already there. That's the meaning of it, the spirit that's there when each person is born. And so if you take that meaning, then everyone has some genius, uh, and genius is the spirit of their life. And in mythology, the genius knows what our life is about. And so another way to understand an initiatory experience is that it breaks a person down so this, this inner spirit can awaken. Go back to my story. I'm in this solitary confinement. I'm going from 155 pounds down to 87. I'm almost disappearing. And I'm losing my mind. You know, I mean, I'm in the dark. I'm just there by myself for months. But what started to happen was characters from myths that I had read started to show up in the cell. I mean, not just like a, a memory, like they were there. So I was in a position where I either was losing my mind or was finding my mind. And so they would give me guidance, just like when you read the stories. And afterwards, I figured out that was the revelation. That was the breakdown. There was nothing left. And what's at the bottom of me has to do with story and myth and imagination. And it showed up when I was seemingly utterly isolated and alone. That's what the initiation tries to do. Uh, And so you had mentioned Jung. Jung's big difference from Freud is he saw the deep self as a healing whole thing that was automatically beneficial. And so you can call it the self or the soul or the spirit or the genius or the daimon, which is the Greek word. You can call it, you can find Sanskrit words. Uh, What it means is there's something of essence in us from the beginning and it's specific. So Mm -hmm. the story says everyone born is unique, just the way every tree in the forest is unique. It could be the same species, but each is different. Nature only makes originals. So our job is to get in touch with our original, inner, inborn, God-given spirit, which is a combination then of talents and gifts and abilities and inclinations and style. And then that comes together and it becomes, and it includes the wound because everyone's wounded and the wound doesn't go away. The wound, the way they say it is the wound can become the womb. We're born from our own woundedness. And in many stories, it's that way. The hero, the actual heroes in the stories are wounded. Famous one where the, um, the young seeker gets the water of life, which everyone's missing the water of life. The world's going dry at, on the level of the soul. And he gets through the castle just at the right moment. The gates are closing and it clips his heel. And for the rest of his life, he'll limp. And he'll have that wound. But the wound is a blessed wound because it reminds him he was in the other world where the water of life came from. So the limp is the indication that we survived our own woundedness, which is also in some places the definition of a shaman. I mean, the shaman is someone who falls apart. Um, If they come back together, they're a shaman. If they don't, they're a crazy person. (laughs) (laughs) and shaman doesn't mean they're the wizard it just means they have an indelible connection to the unseen world so uh so the wound stays wishes with us and that's why they put it on the body so that it could be remembered physically and be seen and felt but the the wound just like the genius is specific uh i want to throw one other thing in 
So this moment I decide to fast. And it wasn't like a decision. It was like a thing. It showed up and I did it. I get out of prison. I'm trying to figure this thing out. And I and, and I don't know if you remember, but back in the day, Bobby Sands and a bunch of the uh, IRA in Ireland are fasting and dying. And I read the story yes, yes. and I realize, wait a minute. And I start to research. And in ancient Ireland, um, fasting against injustice was called Truscott. And it was a ritual done by people in service of their community to fast against injustice because injustice wounds the soul. And it's so important that you could give, forego food and nourishment. So that made me realize just on myself without any education, the ancestors are also present. That was an ancestral thing that came in because both sides of my family are Irish. And so that made me feel, even though I felt isolated from people when I got back, I wound up feeling connected to things like ancestors and things like nature and things like story. And so, um, so I think everybody has their story, everybody has their wound, everybody has their psychological components, the archetypal elements, everybody has their gifts, everybody has their genius. And we just need more um, ways in which people can reveal that to themselves and then find a blessing for community, because that's the last thing. You can know your genius and your gift, but it really has to be blessed by someone who also knows that genius and gift. In other words, uh, genius without some mentoring and some outer confirmation can become very problematic. How, why? Uh, the Greek word for genius is daimon, and that's just their word. Uh, and the idea is when the daimon is not understood um, uh, when it hasn't, the learning hasn't developed for how to carry that daimon, and when it hasn't been blessed by someone else, the daimon becomes a demon. It's just a language thing, but it's very good because that which is our guiding light can become our inner demon if it is we're not oriented. Is a good cultural example of that sort of very talented entertainers that commit suicide or die of drug overdoses. Yeah, and all and all the uh, rock musicians have to head back and and do drugs or do something. Uh, you, you can see the the diamonds on stage with the you know beautiful music coming out. This is just classic story, right? Then they go back to the hotel and destroy the hotel room. The diamond mm. turns into the demon because it hasn't been blessed or even experienced in a way that makes it uh, settle into the person, and and a person has to develop character in order to carry their own diamond or their own genius. Um, because the genius of the diamond is not human. It's a spirit. It's a spirit. And so that's why a people, person also can be driven by their genius. You know, the painters that are staying up for nights and nights on end for the art show that's about to open, and they're still walking into the art show, still painting. Because the, the genius in the daimon doesn't care about the body, doesn't care about the public coming to the art show. It just cares about the expression of the, of the deep gifts of that person. Wow. There's a lot of death in this, isn't there, Michael? Like, you know, like there's the individual death required in order that the subtler energies of the ancestors or the archetypes might come through, that you have to strip away, you know, if you either have to fast or deny or go into the cave in order to read and receive the subtler 
energies. There's a lot of suffering tied to it, a, a, a lot of pain tied to it. I'm fascinated by the amount of language from mythology that found its way sort of somewhat organically into psychology and the origins of psychiatry and psychology. It seems like a very organic transference because dealing with the same ideas. I like what you said there, that <clears throat> that you said that, you know, I'm an admirer of, of Joseph Campbell, but of course, it's not. I wouldn't obviously purport to have a deeper understanding of the, the material as you. But I recognise what you're saying about that. It sort of focuses on somewhat on individualism, which is a uh, easily utilised by the materialistic, individualistic kind of cultures we live in. Do do you um, have any sort of stories then that uh, you know? Because I can recognise that why you would have a hero because you're trying to reach the person that's listening to the story, and you are. Achilles or you are Prometheus or whoever you know that so you stand you know that stands as a avatar for the the the, the audience the listener um but like do you have examples then of um some stories that stress the necessity for communion and collectivization coming together yeah there, there's many of them I want to say I'm also you know in I was a fan of Joseph Campbell that's who I was reading in the 60s because it was the available mm. material. And I got to meet him and work with him a bit. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. But, um, but so my, my distinction there, he calls the hero's myth the monomyth, the one myth. And I'm trying to say, no, myth by its nature is diverse, just the way the forest is diverse. You always have to compare myth and nature. They're very similar. And so I think it was just a, a misunderstanding. Actually, he got the idea from James Joyce, but I'm not sure that Joyce wasn't kidding around. Joyce called in, in Ulysses, in, in his kind of imitation of myth in a way, um, he said that it was the, it was the monomyth. Ulysses was the monomyth. That's what Campbell, Campbell was a Joyce scholar before he became a mythologist. And so, uh, but in his book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, he says early on in the book, that the idea for this came from Arnold Van Gennep's book, Rite of Passage. So underneath the hero's myth, which is valuable in many ways, is those three steps of the Rite of Passage. And that's what Campbell says early in his book on the hero. So, but what I'm trying to say also is something about, we need everybody awakened. We need everybody contributing. We need everybody finding their threads. And so hero is not a big enough image. It's very masculine. It's very aimed at the goal. And I'm trying to say genius is something everyone has. The little girl who's an orphan has it in her soul. No one could take it away from her. She could awaken to it and she could be the person who can, you know, find a vaccine or whatever. That it, it, when people say nowadays we're all in this together, that's literally true. But it can become psychologically more true and mythically true also. So anyway, that's where I was going with that. And now I forget what question you asked. It was like, have you got uh, some folklore or stories that emphasize collectivism or diversity, whatever you prefer? I mean, I suppose they're diverse by their nature. So the dynamic is the individual genius, the awakening of the soul, spirit, character of the person that is their natural inheritance and their ultimate destiny needs to have the community because the gifts we have have to be given to people. 
and the community is the receiver of the gifts of the individual genius and also the ones who bless and then can help and support that individual. So there's a relationship between the awakened person and community. Uh, and then the community cannot function without people who awaken to their gifts. I mean, all of the musicians, all of the theater people, everybody is giving their gift to community, even if they're trading it, they're still giving it. And so community needs the awakened person, the awakened person needs community. So the, the stories that are most healing usually show when those two things happen. I had mentioned the half boy. So here's this story from Borneo. No one in the Western world ever heard it. That's one reason I was telling it, because no one could say like academics do, oh, I know what that means. Because first of all, it's a, it's a half person. So what does that mean? What does your half person look like? Everybody provides their own half person. Anyway, the half boy meets the other half. Um, and you think, oh, here they come together. Now it's, you know, happily ever after. They begin to fight because they're each seeing the world differently. They're the opposite halves and they have a big fight and they roll into the river and the river heats up and steam rises because of the intensity of the conflict of the two halves. And then it goes quiet and no one sees anything. And then one day the river boils up again and out of the river comes the half boy. Now he's made whole. And he's stumbling and utterly confused, which is to say wholeness is such a rare experience that we feel it as disorientation. And if we're not given advice, we could actually miss out on wholeness because it made us feel so disoriented. Anyway, he stumbles, comes to a village, sees the outline of the village as an old person sitting on the edge. And he goes over and says, listen, I've been in this huge struggle. Uh -huh. I don't know where I am. I barely know who I am. Where am I? And the old person sitting there says, oh, you come back to the place where you started from. You're back where you were born, except now you're whole. And I have to tell you this, while you were gone, no one in the village danced, no one experienced joy. But now if you and I, you being young and newly whole and me being old and whatever that is, if the two of us dance into the village, then we'll awaken the whole village. So they go dancing in. And sure enough, here comes the little kids. So they see something fun. They join the dance. Then here comes the, the old people who remember, oh, that's right. We're supposed to dance no matter what age we are. We're supposed to remember the dance. So the old people are dancing. And then the adults come out. You know, they, they have to give up on their mortgage struggles and marriage struggles, you know, to find, you know, they're delayed. But anyway, they show up. Now they're dancing. And the only ones missing are the young people because the young people have to wait to make sure it's really authentic or why the hell would they do it? And finally, the young and now the whole village is dancing and they're dancing all night long. And some people say they're still dancing. Oh, that's cool. And other people say, well, they dance. But then the next morning, there was someone being born and you could hear the cry of the new one coming into the world. Oh, it was a half person. And because of that, the dance stopped. Anyway, two different endings, but you get the idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is sort of the first one. If we were going to format it for Disney, we go if they're still dancing. If you want to take it a little bit darker, you've got to go back to the beginning with the half boy. I like, again, that it has that sort of... It seems to refer to... Hmm. elemental ideas that go beyond psychology and actually enter into the realm of like you know the heating up of the river and these magnetic opposing forces having you know this is to do with stuff that's science in addition to psychology which i suppose yeah, is a very elemental alchemy if you if you study alchemy which is 
the word from which we get chemistry. Chem, C-H-E-M, is an Egyptian word, which means uh, black or darkness. Alchemy, chemistry, is the study of things that are mostly in the dark. But anyway, in alchemy, they, they do take all the elements, and then it becomes uh, the mythological perspective in alchemy is changing lead into gold, lead into the gold. So the half boy, each half of the half boy would be stuck in the lead, literally stuck and barely move. There's only half of a person. How do you move? But when they come together, now they have the golden unity of wholeness, which they then bring to the village. But it only has to, it has to meet up with another wholeness, which is the relationship between the young and the old. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What holds, they say that a culture falls apart when its young people are rejected and its old people are forgotten. Uh, Young and old are supposed to have a secret conversation because the young people are stepping into life, you know, as full life, not as a child, but as adult life. And the old people are ready to go out of life. They're the two edges of imagination. And so another way to imagine wholeness or imagine a change in culture is the young and the old coming together. And in the story, it says that creates the dance for everybody. And dance is a metaphor for being alive in life. We're all supposed to be dancing. Um, And um, so, yeah, so there's the story that shows that, oh, here's another interesting thing. These little stories are amazing. I mean, they're as powerful as the famous myths. Everything's in there. It's just simpler. Uh, The coming together of a person happens in the depth of the river and no one sees it. Oh, wow, yeah. Even a therapist doesn't see what happens inside the client when the client has a moment of wholeness. So there's something about that descent into the depth of the unconscious, into the depth of the soul, where the unity actually happens. And then a person could spend the rest of their life unpacking what happened on the day where I arose from the unconscious, confused, but really for the first time myself. The, the, the density of information there, like in science, could be unpacked for an entire life. I like as well that it, there was a requirement that the wholeness was somehow anchored in that relationship with the elder. Otherwise, the wholeness could go wrong. You know, that like it's not, oh, I'm all right now. Like I, I feel like there's some personal resonance there that you arrive at these incrementally at these different perspectives and series of awakenings, but they are, they are not in, like, entirely pleasant. Sometimes they're fearful and disorienting and scary. Well, because a person, in order to have those experiences of wholeness, this is similar to when people take LSD or something. There's a, a vulnerability to the entirety of creation, which, and go back to the shamanic idea, some people are blown apart. Other people find themselves in a more revealed way. And so there is a danger in it. Um, you know, there's a reason people don't try to become themselves. Uh, it's a little bit easier. <laughs> the path to becoming oneself is radical. It's challenging. It's disorienting. It can be terrifying. And so there's reasons why people aren't even trying. But, um, yeah, so the, now, another, if you take the story psychologically, then you say each person already has inside the eternal youth, which is the eternal um, 
in in Greek language, ancient Greek, it was the chores or the koros, the eternal girl, the eternal boy who's carrying the dream of one's life. You know, that one. And but the other side of it is the wise old sage. And so the psychologically everybody has both. I found the tribe in Africa. Um it's interesting, you know, you study a bunch of stuff and I find one paragraph of this tribe where they say, when we're initiating the young ones, we're trying to awaken the old sage in their heart. That was it for me. I went, I get it. I get it. The initiation of the youth is to bring the wisdom that's there, make it available to youth. That would be the psychological level. Um, if it's going to be a genuine experience with another person, then it's a living mentor or a series of mentors, or a guru. You can name it whatever you want. But it exists already psychologically inside. And then that tells me that the initiation for the elders is a reawakening of the dream of the young person in their heart. So that the young person gets older and wiser by the initiation, and the old person gets younger and wiser by the initiation. So, That's beautiful. So then you can apply that psychologically, you can apply it sociologically, so on. I wonder, Michael, what are functioning as myths in the prevailing dominant culture of our time? I don't mean in the sense of, you know, cinema. I mean substance, substantively. What is the substance of the myths that we are using to guide us? I note that there is an erosion of the kind of relationships you describe, i.e. mentorship, but also an erosion of community. Furthermore, I wonder if from your, the anthropological aspect of your work, if you consider it significant and indeed that you've had to amend what you do to make it sort of personal and psychological because we don't, we don't, we no longer replicate the conditions of our origin, the conditions for which we are evolved, communities of 100, 200 people. I'm not suggesting that we abandon cities or abandon technology or abandon all, all, all the accoutrements of the civilized age that we live in. But do you think that part of the problem of the, the alienation, the rootlessness, the lack of initiation comes from the fact that we aren't even able to identify what it is we need? I mean, you describing your own life, which is some obviously very you know, unique and I would argue somewhat extreme that, that, you know, that you, these things appeared through you, you know, that they realized themselves through the isolation and the fasting but on a broader scale, when we're talking now, as we are indeed, about sort of a, a, a potential global awakening, I wonder if that is possible if we don't have recourse not only to the knowledge, but also the conditions, the support of a community. You know, I wonder what would need to change sociologically and if that's something that you even are interested in. Of course, I'm very interested. Um, so, again, I've been studying this since I was 24 years old. I had to put my life back together. I used that knowledge to put my life back together. Then I had to find people who would confirm it. I had to find mentors who would say, could help confirm that without them even knowing really what it was in a way. Um, so, so then I'm, I'm saying, okay, I, I understand something about how this works personally. And we're not in a mythological age where we're in a really mechanical technological age, but the closest thing we have is psychology. So, so psychology is being, depth psychology in particular, Carl Jung in particular, is being used as a bridge or a stepping stone to what I think is the bigger, deeper, uni more universal 
and, and in a sense, more cosmological stuff. Uh, but now you do it through psychology. And so often when I'm uh, telling stories and so on, I have to interpret it with the audience psychologically because people can't even really grasp uh, how, the, how the mythological works. So that also tells me we have fallen out of a unifying story. One reason for all of the intensely oppositional politics is people are thinking they're in different stories, Brexit being you know, a prime example. People actually think they're in different stories. So, so then, to me, uh, I don't know, there's so many ways to go at it. The way I was thinking about it yesterday, we were doing a podcast, and I called the podcast Once Upon a Time in the Kali Yuga. In other words, I, I woke up, read the news, and thought, we must be in the Kali Yuga, which means the dark times, which is true. But another way to say it is what's masquerading as myth in the modern Western world is um, is really, um, it's, it's not even a full myth. It's really, in a sense, the myth of progress, the myth of evolution. That's what people think they're in, except here came climate change. Here came coronavirus. Here came uproar in the streets. Where is the progress? Where is the evolution? And so in, in the podcast, I was saying we fell out of the story of podcast of, of uh, evolution and, and we fell into the podcast about Kali Yuga. And so Kali, Kali means, it's Sanskrit, it means dark or it means time. And Yuga means either 432,000 years or a real long time. <laughs> so we're in the dark times for a long time. So that would be the first realization. It would be like the realization, oh, I'm in solitary confinement for a long time. It would be like the realization, oh, I have an addictive wound. It's going to be with me for a while. It, it, you could line those things up. Um, so then, so now I have a story because the Kali Yuga is a story. I can talk about it. Um, but interestingly enough, in the Kali Yuga, it turns out that what becomes important is the individual human story. Because the, prior to that, the earlier Yugas, they had shared myths and they had shared ideals. But everything collapsed down into the darkness. And so that means that there's ways to survive the darkness. And we're not through seeing the social systems collapse. The institutions intended to protect people are harming people when they're working at all. And so I think there's several more layers of collapse going to happen. And so mm -hmm. then what do we do? So in, in the case of the Kali Yuga, they say you enter your personal story more fully and you find out what you're devoted to. They, they like the idea of being devout. And they say that you find out what your soul or your is devoted to. So I say we find our genius nature, the aspect of us that was there at the beginning, that is our gifts and our talents and our capacities. And as Carl Jung himself said, genius hides behind the wound. So when you find the genius, you're close to the wound. So we take our combination of our wounds and our gifts and we make that our story. We accept it we find our way then to be devoted to something, which in uh, Sanskrit terms would be find your Dharma, find your way to serve the world. Cool. Um, it reminded me of that story, like uh, when you said that thing about going, we, there was a unifying myth prior to the Kali Yuga, and then uh, everything scattered, like Babylon, you know, this is a, 
now everyone speaks a different language. Now no one knows. No one can communicate. No one can connect. It sounds like the same thing. I feel compelled to ask you, Michael, if I may, um, like what what you feel about uh, the given that the amount that Jung has come up about the idea of the shadow in all of this and the way that the shadow is operating systemically in this time. Oh, we're we're in the shadows of what was the Enlightenment. <laughs> the Enlightenment has become the Endarkenment. Uh, remember the Enlightenment? They were going to shine a light everywhere. Literally, they were going to shine a light. They believed it. And they said, then we would have knowledge and we'd have cures for everything we, because the light would show us everything. Um, and then one of the biggest lights they have was the telescopes going out into the, uh, you know, into the universe, into the galaxies. And so they're shining the light out there to get knowledge. And what do they find? Black holes. Uh, they found out that the universe is, what, 74% darkness, dark matter, dark energy and damn black holes. The light found the dark. <laughs> so, so we've been in the shadow of the cosmos for a long time, and then we're in the shadow, um, you know, of, mm, I don't even know how you name it. The, the, the lack of community is the shadow of unity. Uh, we're in the shadows of all the things that would be um, kind of healing and whole-making. We are living in the shadows. Um, so that's one way to look at it. And then each person has their own personal shadow, right? So um, go back to the idea of genius, which for me, I like because everyone has it, no matter their social class, their gender orientation, or their brand new gender orientation. It doesn't matter. Everyone has it. It's their genius. But as the genius becomes brighter, it creates its own shadow. And so um, the, I think of it like a balloon, one side's red, one side's green. When you blow it up, both sides get bigger. The genius gets bigger, the shadow gets bigger. So, you know, you see it, you know it yourself, you see it in all of the celebrity world. That as, as the person becomes the star that shines, uh, then their shadow intensifies. So people get addicted or they get depressed or they get some mixture of those. So we're more likely to experience our shadow now because of the isolation being created by COVID-19, but also because of the separation being created by the social shadows, the oppositions and the intense um, conflicts uh, put everybody closer to the shadow. So I don't know, Jung's idea is really valuable that a person has to integrate their shadow, has to become to understand their shadow. So someone who has the gift of leadership is going to have the shadow of misusing power almost always. Hmm. How, people, how pe people don't know that is beyond me. You elevate someone and give them power, get ready. They're going to misuse, <laughs> they're going to misuse it to the level, to, to, depending on their awareness. And most of them, most people, uh, because cultures don't talk about power, power is connected to the idea of spirit. Even the religions and even the yogic traditions, when they wind up in the West, don't talk about power. And yes, every encounter with spirit, every growth of spirit is an experience of more power. Wow. You know, so that's that just shouldn't be a surprise. Um it just also shows us what we're supposed to be learning now. You mean power comes from somewhere. Power is coming from somewhere. And if you, ha if you are a conduit for that, 
then it's yes, it's likely that it has an accompaniment. When you said that, I was reminded of I spoke once to Yanis Varoufakis. He was the leader of one of the leaders of Syriza when they got into power in Greece, and then the, they went, "We're not repaying our debt to the EU." And then the they, the EU sort of crushed it, you know, like is what happened. And he said that when he met people like within the EU, the sort of big players of that sort of uh, bureaucracy he said the only power they had was the power of their position the system is so sort of stymieing that you don't you're not going to get someone that can go hey why don't we redistribute wealth or empower this group or empower that group you know so in a sense there's a sort of the 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 the, the systemic roles that are afforded to people are going to only attract certain types of people it's going to keep replicating itself until as you have earlier indicated there is further disruption disintegration i couldn't agree more it, it so there's two Sources of power, positional power, where a person gets to a position and has power. And as we see now in the Kali Yuga, wherever we want to call it, the dark times, the people that are getting power are the least genuine people because they're willing to do all the shady things to get power. Uh, so then they have it, what they thought they wanted, but now they have no, usually they have no or very little capacity for genuine vision. And so now they're just going to play the power game and try to keep their positional power. And then they're working with the other people that want to keep positional power and the possibility of healing, change, growth, that's gone. The other mm. kind of power is called authentic power. So the word authentic is a Greek word and it has two parts, authentikos. And it means... Um, the first part is ortho. Ortho, as in author, means that which makes. So the first part about authentic power, it's a creative person, not a positional person, not at all. Doesn't even want the position because they understand the generation, uh, the generative quality of creation. And then entikos, the second part, is essence. So authentic power arises from the inner authority and inner authoring of a person, and it's combined with an essence would, which would be the union of heart and soul. So now you have a genuine leader. Now you have someone who has vision and is willing to sacrifice. So one of the oldest meanings of the word king is sacrifice. Whoa. The, per function, of, the function of the warrior is to protect and serve all the people, that anything else is not a warrior. Soldiers, not necessarily warriors. Uh, the function of the ruler, the king, the queen, is to sacrifice for the benefit of everybody. And so um, I really agree with the idea that all the authority now is positional power, authority, and people give their power to those who have position rather than trying to find those who have genuine, authentic vision and a capacity to sacrifice for others. So it's a very upside down thing. I suppose if we were looking for examples of that power, we would look to sort of people in the civil rights movement in the middle of the last century and figures like Gandhi, and because it yeah, was power not derived from position, but authentically derived or created power and it's of course you know the the myth of the martyr in each of the obvious cases that i think on Martin Luther king or malcolm x or gandhi they, that you know that they're always sacrificed and a further phenomena of, of particularly of our time 
is the sort of iconoclasm of dismantling and dismissing. Oh, that character though, they did this and they did that, and oh, but really they were this. Well, how do you know if? What do we, how do you think that that can be incorporated? How can we have uh, not real life heroes? Because I recognise the fallibility that is part of all individuals. But how do we have role models even in this time of iconoclasm? What what do we look to? Well, you name some great ones. I mean, Gandhi was extraordinary. He brought down the the Raj. He brought down the British Empire practically by simply walking back to the sea, the edge of the sea, which is where his family came from. His family was salt mm -hmm. gatherers. Mm -hmm. His picking up of a handful of salt, yes, it broke the regulation that no one but the East India Company could control the salt, but he, he was going back to the ancestors because his family had come from salt gatherers. Um, and so that one simple move, he called it satyagraha, the force of truth, to pick up salt when it was illegal was enough. Somehow all the symbolism was right, yeah. the right yeah. character, not that he didn't suffer, but he knew a lot about what he was doing. By the way, he got his idea of fasting from the Irish. No way. Yeah, that, that's documented. But um, so, um, so here's who I thought of. Uh, Native American um, uh, chief, uh, Black Elk, famous character in Native American myth. Uh, and so what happens to him, he's nine years old and he has this enormous dream which he tells everybody because that's how they used to do it. And everybody goes, whoa, that's like the best dream anyone's ever had. And it cannot be just your dream. That's our dream. So they started painting the images of his dream on the outside of the teepees so that everybody would learn it. So it becomes like an art project in a sense. So then when all the tribes come together, he, as he grows older, is clearly the designated leader. The dream told them that that anyone who at that age could have that much vision is destined to be a leader. So he becomes the leader of all the tribes and the tribes who had been battling fine unity. Once a year, they get together. And there's a mound, and on top of the mound, that's Black Elk's teepee up there because he's the highest one. He's the leader. And people always elevate leaders. And then everybody else is down below. So now they're waiting. They're coming to one of the moments each year where the unity is ritually recreated. Because the year, anyway, ritually you do it every year. Uh, and so they're all looking up, and he's in the top teepee. And he comes out, and he comes out backwards, and he bare asses all of them. <laughs> Drops his breeches and bare asses everyone. He's the most powerful person, and he says, by his action, remember, I'm also an ass. In other words, he has that humility. He understands the shadow. He understands that when you elevate someone, you're elevating their assholeness. <laughs> he shows the humility of a true leader, and he educates them on the shadow. And so that's who I think of as a great model, because he, like a, like a musical protege, was identified as nine years old. So he's like the Dalai Lama. That means he doesn't have a regular life ever. But somehow he... <laughs> He figured it all out. And so, yeah, I think we have to find the visionary in each other. And, and like I said, people keep giving their power to those who will misuse it, guaranteed. They're not awake enough to do anything else. Um, and so there has to be a reclamation of power that's held with humility. And then, so here's another idea, one of my favorite ideas. In mythology, um, you don't have to go all the way. 
the job of people is to awaken to something meaningful, to find a way to serve something beyond oneself, and to give it one's full effort. It doesn't mean getting all the way, because the idea is the other world, the world of vision, imagination, and cre creation, is trying to get to us. We only have to go part of the way, and then the answers start coming, not from ourselves, not from our education, but from the world, or the energy behind the world, trying to get it all to come back together. So it can be a more humble, even if it's full-hearted, all-in, but not expecting heroically that any of us is going to save everyone. The answers are going to come from the unseen. Oh, wow, man. Michael, that's a, such a beautiful lesson. And speaking to you is uh, wonderful. I feel like I could li literally listen to you forever because you're talking about the timeless and the transcendent and that which is beyond time, deep, deep truths. I love them final examples of when the actions of mortals have aligned with m myth and have carried that the potency of that into this realm, into the realm of the scene. And I hope I get further opportunities to be taught by you it's fantastic to hear you thank you thank you great conversation i hope we do meet sometime when all this COVID is gone and people can move around again but yeah. really appreciate all the questions and clearly your work on ideas on person on psychology and on culture so thank you thank you michael hope you enjoyed the episode with michael mead let me know what you thought of it on instagram or on social media because we sometimes use comments don't we you've heard me read them at the beginning and thanks again to Andrew Garfield for uh, just just for being you for being the best damn Spider-Man I've ever known yeah and thank you Michael because I love talking to him I'm going to talk to him again he reminded me a lot of James McCleary people that understand myth understand psychology oh beautiful stuff man great stuff reminded me of some people in my own life, my own mentors, in fact, made me think I better ring those guys. Uh, sign up to that mailing list, remember, if you want to, you know, get emails off of me, which you might want because you can get invited to like live events where I take questions and stuff like that, and you'll learn a lot. Maybe you will. I don't know what you know already. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this conversation with Michael, why not check out some of these episodes? Jordan Peterson. I've been watching a lot of his YouTube clips. I guess I'm missing Jordan Peterson's what I'm saying. Alif Shafak. She was amazing. Alif Shafak, she's a wonderful author. Brilliant. Wendy Mandy. Oh, Wendy Mandy. She's a shaman. Um, I saw her again recently. She's wonderful. And keep checking out my YouTube channel daily for new videos. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. <laughs>